Well, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' White Album. And one of the probably most popular and powerful songs from that uh, record was the song Revolution. And I'm going to resist the urge to sing it or have Trevor pound it out on the guitar. If you don't know the lyrics to that song, you may assume that the song is a call for a revolution. Because it's penned by John Lennon, the same guy that tells us to imagine that there's no countries and imagine there's no possessions. It's written in 1968 in the height of the messiness of the Vietnam War and social upheaval is tearing apart our country. And of course, the Beatles are not known for being uh, pro-establishment. Yet if you pay attention to the lyrics of the song, you see that it's not a call for a revolution. It's actually a caution It's a caution to those who want to respond to the mess of the situation by burning it all down, going all the way to destruction. We all want to change the world, but when you talk about destruction, you know, don't you know that you can count me out? You see what he's saying? There are times when the solution is as bad or actually worse than the problem it's trying to address. Injustice is bad. The acts of wicked people, especially when we think about wicked people in power, abusing their power, oppressing and hurting others, is evil. Ignoring it would be almost as bad. You'd be complicit in it. Yet, how we react matters how we react to wickedness. Even wickedness when we are the victims. It matters. And so we turn to our passage. And I want us to see Absalom in the midst of his revolution. A revolution that I think we can understand, even maybe sympathize with. And yet one in which we have to ask, is it right? And when we see ourselves in the same situation and reacting in the same ways, do we act justly? Because, of course, there's another deeper level to what's going on here because it's not just a revolution against a government 3,000 years ago. God's present. What's his role in this whole story? And then that makes it ultimately relevant for us. So let's turn again to this word, and as we do, let's ask God to bless us. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you will help us to understand your word, to uh, get the meaning that you want us to get out of it, and uh, that it might um, challenge us and correct us and call us to a closer obedience to you, our great King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this section of 2 Samuel could be described as a tale of two men, David on the one hand and his son Absalom on the other. The last few chapters has focused on the events of King David. And if you have been paying attention, especially since chapter 11, these acts of David have been about as deplorable as you could possibly imagine. 
This is not the David of your nice little Sunday school lessons. This is a David who's looked on to a, a woman bathing and has had to have her, acquires her in no uh, short terms, lays with her. And then when he discovers that this one-time fling that she's now pregnant, he tries to cover it up. And in that cover-up, he winds up um, arranging so that her husband gets involved in a very risky, in fact foolish, military campaign that kills him and as well as many of his own soldiers. The story gets worse as we see his sins get visited back upon him in his son Amnon. Amnon takes his sexual sin up a notch with his rape of Tamar. But David's also involved in that as he, the supreme judge of the land, looks at all the evidence, all the mounds and mounds of evidence that should have been enough to convict, and he lets Amnon go, denying justice. David is a far cry from the man after God's own heart. His sin here is ugly. And we get introduced then to Absalom, his son, who is a great contrast. We're told very admirable things about him. In chapter 14, we learn that he's very attractive. The author says, in, Israel, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Our passage that we looked at this morning goes on to say that he rose up early to run to the city gate. That's the place where people would bring their problems, and he would listen to the people. He would try to hear the things that they were struggling with, to connect with them. He understood what the people wanted. He was a populist. He was a man of the people. You know, I'm sure you've seen enough presidential campaigns to have that image of your mind, what it looks like for somebody to be on campaign. The image that comes to mind is the candidates all running around little small towns in Iowa during the caucuses, you know, and, and they're doing all things that you wouldn't expect someone of high office to do. They're, they're going to the local coffee shop. They're going into some farm somewhere and digging, you know, through the slop. And that's what Absalom is doing. He's talking to people. He's saying, what town are you from? He's listening to their causes with strong empathy. I feel your pain. I hear what you're going through. And then he's bemoaning the fact that, you know, there's nobody in Washington that's going to hear you. Too bad there's not somebody who can listen to your cause and take it up. He wouldn't be like those people in power. He's not like the rich and the powerful when they come and try to bow in homage to him, he picks them up and says, no, we're equals, and embraces them. And the people loved him. It says they stole their hearts. Change is always exciting, but change when there's a charismatic leader who's able to connect with them, well, that's contagious. And thankfully, he is no David. What has become a very public sin. Absalom is a good contrast to. 
And then we think about his move to a revolt. But you know, if anybody had a righteous motive for criticizing David, if anybody had a a righteous cause to overthrow King David, it was Absalom. Tamar was Absalom's sister that was raped. And David not only failed to punish her rapist, but he failed to allow Absalom his biblical right, according to Leviticus, as an avenger. It was Amnon's role, I mean, it was Absalom's role to be able to to deliver that punishment. And David, by creating a sanctuary in Jerusalem for him and then releasing him, denied Absalom that right. And then when Absalom takes matters into his own hands and goes after Amnon and kills him, fulfilling justice, David keeps estranged from him. It took years for Absalom to be welcomed back into the city of Jerusalem. And even when he was welcomed back into Jerusalem, David refused to speak to his son. He turned a cold shoulder to him. Now, if anybody has a cause to start rebelling against David, it's Absalom. People started to flee and join Absalom's side. We see David's top advisor, Ahithophel. Ahithophel knew of David's warts. In fact, he knew it all too personally as well. We'll find out in a couple chapters that Ahithophel, David's chief advisor, the top guy that had so much wisdom, well, his granddaughter was someone by the name of Bathsheba. He had a reason to be mad and leave David as well. I hope you see what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to get you to sympathize with Absalom. To appreciate how he saw himself. I want you to rationalize his rebellion in some way. Why am I doing that? Well, because I think if we demonize Absalom, we'll miss the way that his response is very similar to how we respond. I want you to appreciate what he is doing in a way that you can see yourself. That connection is so important because at the end of the day, Absalom is blind to the sinfulness of his response to King David. And in the same way, I think we're often blind to the ways in which we, we, when we respond to wickedness, we too can be sinful. So let's begin in that sympathizing. We see all the corruption that happens in David and and his unjust actions, and so we understand why this makes sense. And we have to make that connection with ourselves. Where are the situations where you find yourself hurt, wounded, where you see injustice and you see the the people in power maybe uh, exercising it in in ways in which you cry out and say, no, that is not right. (coughs) Excuse me. Where is that for you? At work? At school? In government? At home? We all have those experiences. But now let's look again at the way Absalom responds to David. And I want to see that his response, though he's responding to something bad, could be maybe as bad or perhaps worse than the original problem. I want to focus on two sins that we see in Absalom here 
ones that are related, but they're easily overlooked. The first is pride. Absalom's pride causes him, enables him to bring this revolt. He not only looks at David and judges him as unworthy to be the king, but he also looks at himself and judges himself as worthy, as fitting to hold that office. Now, to be clear, it's not prideful to criticize David. It's not prideful to call out the sins that David has. But pride is always comparative. Pride's always a competition. And here's the real danger. Pride always serves itself rather than the interests of others. And this is what we see in Absalom. Sure, Absalom's pride makes it look like he's serving others. But when we really look at closely here, he's serving his own interests. He's using people. Pride always finds a way to manipulate, to deceive. And we find that welling up in our own hearts. Absalom gets up early. He goes to the city gate. I mean, that's the place where the king would meet. He's the judge of the land, and he would hear the cases of the people. Well, Absalom got up early enough to start meeting some of the people. But he was not king. He had no role as judge. He had no problem stepping into that role himself, though. He hears the cases, and he says, See, your, your claims are good and you're right. Isn't it interesting that everybody's claims are good and right? Shouldn't that stand out to us? What kind of judge sides 100% of the time with the plaintiff? Well, a judge that doesn't care about justice. A judge that only cares about his image. And it's hard to see how sinister this is, but it's really unloving when a leader will take everyone's side. It's really unloving when a leader doesn't have the courage or faithfulness or discernment to say, no, that is not a valid claim. No, that is not just. You don't have a case. Absalom is only serving himself. We are only serving ourselves when we are people pleasers, when we are yes men, when we are trying to, even as leaders, answer people according to what they want to hear. And there's a danger in that. It's manipulative. And it's also the slickest way to undermine authority. Verse 3, do you see what Absalom says? Oh, what a pity. You know, the king is too busy sleeping around for him to actually hear your case. Oh, what a pity. There's not somebody. Oh, who could it be? Maybe, you know, somebody whose name rhymes with uh, Babsalom. I don't know. That could uh, take this role as king and, and hear your, your just cause. He's undermining the authority in a way that makes him seem like the good guy. The question is, is it true? Is this claim true that David is out not hearing cases? Well, actually, if we've been paying attention, the chapter right before this, we see a woman of Tekoa bringing a case before David, and David hearing it, even though the case she brings actually exposes some hypocrisy in David. David takes it well and says, yeah, that is hypocritical of me. He hears and he rules justly. So with that 
example fresh in in all of our ears, it is striking for Absalom to insert himself and says there is nobody making judgments here. It's slander. The pride comes out so much when we see, well, pride comes out when we see it in others. When we see someone else at the center stage, when we see someone else that is, is being able to, to exert power. And when they're on the center stage, we sit by looking at all the areas in which, in which they have faults and, and exposing and pointing them out and emphasizing them and, and tearing them down in an effort so that we can pull ourselves up. Absalom wants to create and craft this huge image of himself that looks like the man of the people. He wants to look like the pious man. He, he goes and asks permission of David. Let me go and sacrifice to complete a vow in Hebron. Like, Absalom has no intention of worshiping God in Hebron. Why is he going there? Well, that is the very city where David was anointed king. Absalom rich in symbolism, wants to be the man, anointed king. He goes there with his secret plot to have all the people that are his supporters proclaim him king in that city. So then he can move exactly like David did from Hebron to Jerusalem. Verse uh, 6 sounds like Absalom is winning the affections of the people. We read that, and it says he stole the hearts of the people, and it sounds romantic, but let me encourage you to read the word stole there literally, not romantically. He deceived the hearts of the people. He didn't just win them over and whisk them away. He deceived them. He duped them. Pride works that way, doesn't it? It drives people, it drives all of us when we give ourselves into pride to use people to serve our purposes. It's hostile. C.S. Lewis, in in one of the most powerful chapters of all of his books, one that just, I remember as a young Christian reading it, just undid me, (laughs) is his book, his, uh, his chapter on pride in mere Christianity. Still remember, chapter eight. It's a wonderful, uh, take a, go home and read it. It's amazing. Lewis says, pride always means enmity. It's enmity. It's battle. It's conflict. Not only enmity between man and man, but enmity between man and God. And that is what happens here. That's the very link that leads Absalom to his second sin. Yes, not only is he serving his pride to put himself at the center to manipulate all the things around him to serve him. Actually, what he's doing here is revolting against God. He's not just in a campaign to replace David. He's in a campaign to replace God. Well, you might say, how is that? God's hardly mentioned in this whole chapter. Where does it come in? But the thing is, David isn't just any king. Because Israel isn't just any nation. That facts should be pounded into your uh, ears if you've been listening to the sermon series all the way through 1st and 2nd Samuel. But if you're new to it, that is the theme. That is probably the biggest no-no you can do in Israel is to act 
like other nations, to treat it like it's just a normal country. No, Israel was not. David was not normal. He was the Lord's anointed. He held a special office. And that was an office given by God. And it was designated by God to be part of God's redemptive plan. That office was going to be used by God to save his people. David knew that himself. You know, when the shoe was on the other foot and David was a young man and the office was held by Saul, David knew this temptation that Absalom felt because Saul was a wicked king. Saul was utterly faithless. And not only that, but Saul um, chased after David through much of, of the book of 1 Samuel. Envious of who David was, Saul tried time and time again to stomp out David. But each time, David withheld his hand. Why? Because Saul was, was not just a regular person. When he looked at Saul, he saw the office. And the office was bigger than the man. And so we hear in chapter 24 and 26 of 1 Samuel that, that David, when he comes into these great opportunities and he has the sword basically raised, he says to himself, I cannot, because he is the Lord's anointed. He sees that the office of king is bigger than the man. It was bigger than Saul. David understood that God is behind this. God had promised that the kingship would serve his purpose. And who was he to remove this man? It would be God alone who could act. You fast forward to our chapter, and Absalom not only has no problem attacking the Lord's anointed, he, ha- he doesn't give much regard to the office of king at all. You notice that when people started treating him like a king and bowing to him, he, he picks them up and says, We're equal. That sounds wonderful, but what is that doing? It's making it personal. It's making it about Absalom. It was a total disregard for the office that they were coming to even uh, revere. But God's king is tied to God's plan, and that's even more so with David because a few chapters ago, God made a special covenant with David, saying that it's this kingship is this, is this that will bless the people? Is this that I will use forever to bless God's people? The promise was bigger than the man. God's people were looking at the king and thinking, okay, I see a lot of problems with David. He is not perfect. But you know what? I got this promise from God. And so even though I see what he's doing, I'm going to hold on to that promise. Because the office was bigger than the man. But now Absalom not only feels it free to attack the Lord's anointed, he feels free to provoke a complete revolution. You know, I use that word revolution uh, because it is to signify something greater than just a change of office. This isn't just a guy who's going to throw his name on the ballot. Uh, to take over a previous leader. No, this is someone who is calling for a complete change in constitution. What Absalom is doing here is challenging the very identity of Israel. Well, how can I say that? 
That should be the very thing that stands out to us if we um, were well-versed in Deuteronomy, which I can't imagine many of us, including myself, are. We look at verse 1, and it seems a little strange. Okay, Absalom picked up a lot of horses, uh, acquired them in his stable along with some chariots. What's the big deal? Why is that note even in there? Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy 17, we'll see a great warning that happens when God talks to his people about when they ask for a king. And he basically says, the king shall not acquire for himself many horses. There were two things he warned against, not many horses and not many wives. Absalom, here, in his first step to create a rebellion, gathers together many horses. He will, in just a few verses, gather together many wives in, his con- in taking over the concubine that had been David's. That move was exactly what worldly kings do. Because what it is saying is, I want to rely on my assets. I want to rely on my resources and wield power the way that the world does. He's turning to that from trusting in God. We see those warnings throughout. Israel should not be a normal nation. It is a holy people. It is the church. Not a nation like every other nation. Absalom, in his pride, claims that he should have the throne. He has many people shout out, blow a trumpet, and say, you are the king. But Israel should never have been a democracy. You became king in Israel by the anointing of a prophet. Absalom doesn't care about waiting for a prophet. He anoints himself. He's undoing Israel. He is another Saul. We could read his handsomeness and his his charm, his popularity, his positives, but they're all flash and no substance. Like Saul, he shows that all the things you look for in a leader, he is utterly faithful. You're missing the most essential thing. Absalom's the cover boy of Leadership Magazine, but he's not a shepherd for God's flock. Perhaps again we need to sympathize with him to see how easily our hearts react the same way. How are we like this? Many of us don't set out to rebel against God. That's not our motive. But we do desire, probably very openly, we do desire to expand our control. We want to expand the control that we have over all of our life. We want to assert our will. We want to make sure that our plan for our life happens, and so we try to get our fingers on more things because we believe that our plan is what will make us satisfied. We see problems up ahead or problems in the rearview mirror, and we want to respond to them. And we want to respond because we think we're right. But sometimes it's the, it's the wickedness of the thing we're responding at that, that clouds the fact that our response itself is sinful. When you respond, when you respond by increasing your control, what are you doing? You're shrinking your hope. 
You're shrinking your hope down to your own meager abilities. You're shrinking your hope down to the only resources that you have. Guys, when our best answer is our kingdom, we are in rough shape. When our best answer is our our small world of what we can control, we are denying the true hope that only comes from getting out of ourselves and to looking for something else. Absalom is blind to the fact that his his revolution is actually dismantling Israel's hope. It is not going to save Israel from some corruption. It's actually taking away the source of hope that they should always be pointed to. Our desire for control does the same thing. It turns us away from a world where God is sovereign and, and moving and in control to a world where our anxiety and our, our desire for manipulation reign. We wind up with our own personal revolution. You say you want a revolution, but when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Okay. We don't go to the extreme, but, but what's the solution? Is it simply to sing along with the Beatles? Don't you know it's going to be? All right. Is that, is that good news? Let's let go and let God. Stop worrying and, and learn to love the wicked king. Oh, wow, no, please, don't go there. The extreme on the other end. What a horrible response it would be if we just said, okay, he's wicked, uh, but we can't do anything about it. And maybe he's not so bad after all. No, we would be complicit as well. If we ignored David's sin, to see injustice and say, well, God will just work it out, that's not the biblical response. It's unloving even to David to let his sins go unchecked. You know, it reminds me of the story of the emperor's new clothes. You know, he's convinced somehow that he has these fancy new clothes, but he can't see him and nobody can see him. Nobody is brave enough or courageous enough to tell him that he's nude. They laugh behind his back. That is not loving. It's not loving to ignore David's sin. He deserves a rebuke. But in fact, he has already had two rebukes. He had a rebuke from the prophet Nathan. And he had a rebuke from Joab, his uh, other advisors, military advisor. You see, God has already confronted David with his sin. He made David taste the vileness of it. And it led to genuine repentance. We see that not only in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, when when David repents and even the prophet Nathan says, yes, you now have been, the sin has been removed from you. You are forgiven. But we even see this in Psalm 51. What many of us would call the gold standard of genuine repentance. David knew his sin, and he's turned from it. But God never calls for him to be removed as king. And I want to tell you, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of the gospel that God will still bring about his redemptive purpose, even through sinful men. He will still bring about his redemption, even through a flawed king. And we can rejoice knowing even more so that the promise that God made never relied on David as a person. 
It always relied on the office that God had established. I mean, that's the real glory of this story, is that God's plan is going to win out, even when carried about by sinful people. You can look at flawed ministers. Here I am. You can see the flaws in Preston, myself, and Craig. And there's easy reason for you to say, I don't want to listen to a thing this guy has to say. You can bounce from church to church and never find one that is worthy to actually stay at. And there's a million reasons why you should turn away and go your own way. And you'll be tempted to say, my life is just going to be better to get away from the people that are corrupt. Better to have the spirituality on my own. But you know, honestly, unfortunately, in that situation, you are left with yourself. You haven't avoided the problem. In fact, the situation is much worse because God ties his promises to be here with his people. He ties his promises with the offices he's set up. He never ties his promises to individuals acting on their own. In fact, there are plenty of warnings in Scripture to warn us against isolation and individualism and independence. All right, so we see Absalom's sinful response to King David's wickedness. We see him react with pride and with rebellion. But as we close, I want us to look at David's response to King David's sin. How did David respond in this situation? You know, Absalom's rebellion must have stung. Not only because it was his son who was trying to overthrow him, but because he knew that he had good reasons. He knew that Absalom had him as a person. That he could have pointed out very justly all the things that David has done wrong. But notice David's response. I mean, it is jaw-dropping. With all that baggage, David never becomes defensive. He's never tempted like we are in those situations, or at least it's not appearing so. He doesn't act it out to be self-protective, to excuse his sins, or justify himself. He never says, hey, look, I don't care what I did. I'm the king. Just obey. He doesn't do that. He doesn't react as someone who, who doesn't have the gospel. But he also doesn't give up. He also doesn't throw in the towel, saying that he's too sinful to continue as the Lord's anointed. You know, he's not abdicating here. I want to make that clear. He didn't make it about himself. He flees Jerusalem not because he's giving up. He flees Jerusalem because he knows that if he stayed in fortified Jerusalem, that what would happen would be a civil war. And so he heads off into the wilderness, leaving Jerusalem for Absalom to take. But he still remains as king. And we see that through the rest of this chapter and into the next. As he gathers advisors around him, his response isn't to marshal an army and to then go and overthrow Absalom. No. He doesn't see this battle as flesh and blood, even at this point. He prays. He prays that God would somehow undo Absalom to bring confusion into Ahithophel, the great advisor. 
When the priests come and bring him the ark of God, he doesn't do what they had done earlier in 1 Samuel and take that ark and go to war saying, we're going to use God as, as a token to manipulate him into our victory. He sends the ark back into Jerusalem. That's where it belongs. It's astounding. David responds as one who lives in the presence of God. C.S. Lewis goes on in that same chapter on pride to say, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether, he concludes. I want you to hear that. You who struggle with your sin, who know it, you need to hear that. Parents who feel like you failed, who know time and time again you're just faced with your inability to be what you think your kids need, you need to hear it. Leaders who know your sin, who can think of a million reasons why you're not qualified and not one and why you should still be worthy, you need to hear this. Look at David. He knew his flaws, but he saw the calling in his life from God as bigger than himself. He knew it wasn't about him, and it's not about you. You need to take your flawed self. You need to know all the sin and mixed motives that you have. And you need to still serve the greater calling which God's calling you to do. In humility enough to still repent and try to turn from your sins and do battle with them, but not becoming defensive and not throwing in the towel. When you live for something greater, you live before God. You acknowledge that he is actually present and active. And when you acknowledge his place in this whole thing, then you have peace in the things you control because you know that even the slop that you're offering, God can turn into gold. But you also have peace in the things you don't control because you know that the one who controls them loves you and cares about you and will work things for your good. David fulfills his job as the Lord's anointed because he sees his calling is bigger than himself. He puts his pride and his desire for control aside for the one who has called him. And in this way, David is just a small echo or or shadow of the greater David to come. He points us to Christ. Just as David left this place to go into voluntary exile, to put himself at risk so his people wouldn't die in a civil war, so Christ humbles himself in the plan of redemption to enter into the exile of our sin and death, to redeem those he is called to protect so he's not looking at himself. But of course, Christ goes to the cross not as a martyr, but as a reigning king because he enters into death to do battle with it and to conquer it. If we insist on our own way, what we will be doing is turning to our own small kingdom of self where our hope is as small as the things that we can control. Turn from that. Turn from that to the king who is reigning. 
to the one who calls you. Follow Christ. And then open yourself up to the hope that he offers, which is unbounded and for you. Let's pray.